do that, we continue to focus on the theme of corporate worship. And what we mean when we say corporate worship is that time when the whole church gets together to publicly praise God, take communion, and hear from God's word. Now, of course, at Prairie View, we do this every single Sunday morning. Every single week, somebody plans a service, somebody writes a sermon, some people rehearse some music, someone puts the communion together. But why? Why do we do all that stuff? What's the point of it? And when we do that stuff, how do we do it well? How do we do corporate public worship the right way, the kind of way that honors God? Well, last week we saw one example of how the Corinthians were not worshiping well. One group of Corinthian believers were alienating another group of Corinthian believers, tempting them to violate their consciences. This started because of their desire to still participate in old forms of worship in pagan temples with meat sacrificed to idols. One group wanted to do that. The other group felt it was sin. And thus there was division. But not only that, the Corinthians even failed to practice communion well, that thing that we just did. And communion, they were neglecting the poor in their church, leaving them with nothing to eat and drink. When for the poor in Corinth, communion might be the best meal they get all week. But the Corinthians practice of worship and even communion was marked by selfishness. It was marked by a lack of concern for their fellow believers' well-being. And that's why Paul challenges them to do the exact opposite. To have a different attitude. To look out for their fellow believers at all times. To put their interests ahead of their own, even if that means making sacrifices for them. That even includes times when we think our fellow believers are just being oversensitive. Or when we think that the issue is trivial. But according to Paul, selfishness has no place within corporate worship. It has no place within the body of Christ because we follow Jesus himself, the one who on the cross made the most unselfish act in all of history, dying for sinners like us. Now, we look again at corporate worship this morning and we find more things that might sound kind of strange to us. Like last week's issue of food sacrifice to idols, talk about things like head coverings and speaking in tongues might sound foreign. It might sound difficult for us to relate to. But the core question of this week's passage is actually totally relevant to people like us today. That question is this. What, or maybe more appropriately, who is public worship really all about? What or who is public corporate worship really all about? So with that, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Feel free to follow along in the Bibles that we provide beneath our chairs. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you when you leave. But before we do any reading, let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to meet together. Again, this practice of public and corporate worship. Uh, there are times throughout the week that we meet together, whether it's through coffee with a brother or sister in Christ, or whether it's Monday night volleyball, or whether it's a small group, all these different times that some of us get together. But this is the one time every single week that we all get together. 
that we all see each other's faces, that we're all reminded that other people exist, even though we so often focus on our problems or our concerns. So, Father, I pray that as we read about public worship, the whole practice of Sunday morning, that we would be reminded of what Sunday morning is all about, that we would be reminded of why it is that we get together, and we would be reminded of just how privileged and honored we are to get together and call you our Lord, call you our King, call you our Father, and it's all because of what Christ did on the cross for us, opening up our access to you. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name and ask that this morning would bring you glory. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well... You visitors chose a great week to be here. (laughs) There's a lot going on in this passage, isn't there? All this talk about head coverings and hairstyles seems kind of weird. seems kind of bizarre. But we're going to read through it together and we're going to do our best to understand it better because all of God's word, including this passage, has something to teach us. So let's start out in verse two. Starts out simple enough, right? Paul has been rough on the Corinthians so far in this letter, and that's okay because that's what they needed. The Corinthians needed some tough love, and Paul's been giving that to them. However, Paul also doesn't want to discourage them too much. He doesn't want to lead them into complete despair. So Paul throws them a bone. He tells them that he's proud that they're not getting it all wrong. They've maintained the traditions. They're doing some commendable things as a church. It's not a total disaster. But then he jumps right back into the dominant theme of the letter, and that's addressing problems within the church. This time around, the problem is about head coverings in public worship. Now, again, that sounds kind of weird to us, doesn't it? 
I mean, in our culture, nobody really cares all that much whether or not your head is covered in church. Nobody really cares all that much what kind of hairstyle you have. Now, traditionally, it's been considered good etiquette for men to remove hats in church, but that's certainly nothing that's going to split a church, right? That's not a big problem. In some traditions, it's true that women always wear hats in public worship. Okay, fine, if that's what you want to do, but is that really a problem? That Paul would have to address? Well, Paul says that men wearing coverings over their head shouldn't wear those coverings. They should stop. And that wives who aren't wearing coverings should wear those coverings. Now, again, why? What's the big deal? Who cares? Well, in that culture, this was a very big deal. History teaches us that sometimes Greek and Roman men would pull their togas over their heads to signal that they were important, to signal that they were men of status. Some men would intentionally wear their hair long as a public rejection of how God designed men and women differently. Paul says that the Christian men in Corinth doing this in public worship, covering their heads, ought to stop. Well, in verse 7, Paul says that man is the image and glory of God. But here's the thing. With these head coverings, with these hairstyles that men are wearing, they're not fulfilling their mission to reflect the glory and the image of God and worship. They're only concerned about their own image. They're only concerned about their own glory. They're wearing these head coverings. They're wearing these hairstyles to bring attention to themselves in the context of worship. But again, it's not just the men who are guilty. The wives have it mixed up too. Some Greek and Roman women would stop wearing veils over their heads, which was what women did who were married. They wore veils or they would shave their heads entirely in order to identify themselves as single or available or maybe even worse in the profession of prostitution. Now, of course, if you have these Christian women who are married to their Christian husbands and in public worship, they're removing their veils. That's an act of defiance. It's an opportunity for them to declare their independence from their husbands. And Paul says that these women are shaming their husbands and thus shaming God in the process. Now, again, we really don't have to deal with this specific issue in the church today, right? So it's easy to pretend that a passage like this is totally irrelevant to us. But there is an overarching principle here that we can take. And it goes back to our core question. Who or what is public worship really all about? Well, in chapter 11, Paul tells us worship isn't about us. It simply isn't about us. Some men... And some married women in Corinth were using public worship simply as an opportunity to make a statement about themselves through head coverings and hairstyles. They're making statements about their importance, statements about their status, statements about their independence. They're causing problems. They're being contentious. And more importantly, they're using worship not to honor God, but to bring attention to themselves. So the principle that Paul teaches us today is this, that public worship isn't about us. It's not about you. 
and it's not about me. Getting together on Sunday morning isn't another opportunity to just make some kind of public statement, to publicly stick it to the man or make any other contentious or divisive or controversial statement just for the sake of attention. Because those things take glory and honor away from God and instead draw everyone's eyes to us. And that simply isn't the point of Sunday morning worship. Now, again, the circumstances may be very different for us now than they were back then for the Corinthians. But how often do we lose sight of the fact? How often do we lose sight of the principle that corporate worship is about God and not about us? When we evaluate a worship service, we say things like, you know, I didn't like the music or the sermon bored me. Don't say that one. At least not publicly. We say things like, I wasn't entertained. The chairs weren't comfortable. The thermostat was too low or too high. I really don't like when they ask for my money. They didn't have the cool videos I like the way that other church down the road does. But all those questions revolve around I, 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 me, me, me. When public corporate worship isn't about I, I, I. Me, me, me. Worship is about God. Cultural practices about hairstyles and head coverings, those things may have changed in 2000 years. But the principle remains the same. Public worship is about God. It's not about us. That was true back in Corinth. And that's still true for Christians like us today. Now, Paul has more to say about worship in chapter 14. Let's jump forward to 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement And consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, we're still in the theme of public worship, corporate worship, Sunday morning type scenario. And Paul talks about these two spiritual gifts that the Corinthians practiced in public worship. Those two gifts being prophecy and tongues. Now, let's define our terms before we go any further. What do we mean by prophecy? What is Paul saying when he uses the word prophecy? Well, a good way to define it might be God inspired speech. God-inspired speech. Let's think about the history of prophecy. In the Old Testament, God would appoint a prophet. He would give a prophet a message. And then the prophet would share that message with God's people. The prophet is a middleman. He really is a messenger. His job is to say what God tells him to say. That's God-inspired speech. So you jump forward to the New Testament and we have the apostles. 
Apostles receive messages from God through the Holy Spirit. They share those messages with God's people, whether it's Peter preaching a sermon in the book of Acts or Paul writing a letter like this one. That's God-inspired speech. You jump even further forward to today. Preachers look to God's word, they prepare sermons, and then they share the word with God's people. And so long as a sermon presents God's word faithfully, rather than the opinions of the preacher or the ideas of the preacher, then even a sermon could be called God-inspired speech to some extent. Now, Paul says that the Corinthians should especially pursue this gift of prophecy, especially pursue this gift of God-inspired speech. Why? What makes it so special? Well, he tells us. Prophecy serves to encourage and console and builds up God's people. Some variations of those words, build up, that phrase is used at least seven times in the passage. 1 Corinthians 14. So it's safe to say that Paul thinks it's important. But not only does prophecy build up believers, Paul says it convicts unbelievers of sin. Look to chapter 14, starting in verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? An unbeliever walks in sees worship of a church, and declares God is really among you? Isn't that a beautiful idea? That's what Paul has in mind for corporate worship. And prophecy can do just that. So knowing all of this, you can see why Paul would value prophecy in public worship over the gift of tongues. Look what he says in verse 19 of chapter 14. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind, he's referring to prophecy, in order to instruct others, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul clearly values prophecy, God-inspired speech, for our sake today, preaching, in the context of public worship. But again, Paul does still mention tongues. Can't get around that. What exactly is he talking about there? Well, many conservative Christians get uncomfortable with the practice of speaking in tongues. And we argue that Paul is talking about other languages, other earthly languages, like in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. That speaking in tongues would be like me randomly learning how to speak German in the context of public worship. But I can't. Nine. I know that one. But that simply doesn't appear to be what Paul's talking about in this passage. He's not talking about earthly languages. He really does seem to be talking about some kind of unique language spoken to God in a context kind of like prayer. A language that only someone with the gift of interpretation can understand. Now, again, you may have lots of images in your mind of what that looks like. You may have had experiences with that in the past, either positive or negative. But what makes conservative Christians like myself and like many of us uncomfortable 
is that Paul encourages the Corinthians in this passage to pursue this gift. He acknowledges that this gift can be a good thing. It can build up the individual person who's participating. If that gift is interpreted, it can build up the church. Now, that being said, if it's not interpreted, it just sounds like gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. And at the end of the chapter, Paul specifically tells the Corinthians not to forbid speaking in tongues. You can't get around this stuff. But there's always a but. Paul does put this gift in its proper place. He makes it clear that this gift is useless to the body if it's not done the right way. If it's not interpreted the right way, it is useless. Unlike prophecy, the gift of tongues will likely turn unbelievers away from conversion rather than turn them toward it. If they walk in and everyone's speaking in tongues, Paul says they'll just think you're crazy. It's certainly not a gift worth obsessing over like the Corinthians apparently did. And it's clearly not to be elevated above prophecy. Now, all that being said, you still can't get around the fact that Paul endorsed speaking in tongues at the church in Corinth so long as it was done properly. But for people like us, this naturally leads to the question, and rightfully so, okay, if Paul encouraged the Corinthians back then to do it, does that mean that we should do it today? Should we, as followers of Christ, pursue the gift of speaking in tongues? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know. I really don't. I've never practiced it. Good Christians disagree over whether or not the spiritual gift is available to believers today. Some say this gift is no longer available. Some say it's still available. Good Christians disagree. But unfortunately, it does seem that when it is practiced today, when those churches that do practice it employ it in public worship, it isn't practiced the way Paul desires that it be practiced. All too often, there is no interpreter, which Paul rejects for public worship. It's sometimes viewed as the mark of a true Christian, as if someone who speaks in tongues is more holy than other Christians. Paul would reject that, too. Some even suggest that you're only a true Christian if you speak in tongues, that if you don't speak in tongues, you don't really have the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul would reject that. As well, he would certainly disagree. So according to Paul, the gift of prophecy builds up the church much more effectively than the gift of tongues does. The gift of prophecy convicts unbelievers more effectively than the gift of tongues does. So if all that stuff is true, why were the Corinthians so obsessed with it? Why were they so enamored with this gift? Well, it's the same reason that many people are still enamored with the gift of tongues today. All too often, we like things that are flashy and impressive. The gift of prophecy, God-inspired speech, a sermon, delivering a message from God to his people. Paul makes it clear that that's more important. That's more beneficial. That builds up the church more. But for some people... It just doesn't seem quite as exciting 
it doesn't seem quite as exotic as speaking in tongues. And this Corinthian obsession over speaking in tongues comes back to our core question. What, or maybe more appropriately, who is worship really about? What or who is worship really about? Well, in chapter 11, Paul made it clear that worship is not about making statements about your importance or your status or your independence. Likewise, worship is not about us getting together and simply showing off some flashy spiritual gifts like the gift of tongues. Because the same message remains true, that worship is about God, not about us. Worship is about God's glory. Worship is about building up believers. Worship is about convicting unbelievers of sin and showing everyone to see that salvation comes and is only found in Christ himself. But that being said, every single one of us, maybe in different ways, are sometimes tempted to make worship about us, aren't we? We sometimes like to tell ourselves that we're God, that the world revolves around us, that worship ought to be dictated by our desires, our comfort, our preferences. It's an opportunity to show off our status, bring attention to our glory or our gifts. But that's not what worship is. True worship wasn't about the Corinthians back then, and it's not about you and me Today, earlier we sang that Jesus is the foundation of the church, and that remains true as well. Our salvation is based on Christ. Our salvation is based on the one who left the worship of the angels in heaven to put on flesh. Our salvation is based in the one who should have been worshipped by men, but instead was crucified by them. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our confidence. Even though we still wrestle with that temptation to make worship all about us. Now, as we close, look back at verse 25 one more time. That reaction of the unbeliever when he attends public worship, he sees worship done well. Worship that is about God rather than about men. That's where the unbeliever declares for all to hear, God is really among you. God is really among you. Isn't that the goal of Sunday morning worship? Isn't that the goal? To put our attention so much on God that everyone else around us with their head coverings or their hairstyles or their status or their statements or their gifts, that everyone else around us would absolutely pale in comparison When we put our attention on God, the one who created everything, the one who saved us through his son, Jesus Christ. Worship that centers on God has the power to build up the church. Worship that is centered on God has the power to convict unbelievers of sin. But worship that is centered on us doesn't have the power to do those things. Gathering every single Sunday morning isn't about you. It's not about me either. It's not even about furthering the name of Prairie View Christian Church. Sunday morning is about putting all of our attention on God. 
Because when that happens, the church can be built up. Unbelievers can be convicted of sin. And when it comes down to it, that's why we get together. That's what Sunday morning is all about. That's why we plan the service. That's why someone writes a sermon. That's why people rehearse music. That's why someone prepares bread and juice for communion. That for even just one hour on Sunday morning, God would be the center of our attention above everyone and everything else in this world. And that as we leave here, that would continue throughout the week. That our eyes would be so fixed on the glory of God and everything that we do, that everything else would pale in comparison. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful that every single Sunday morning we have this awesome privilege and awesome honor of coming into your presence. And the only reason that we would dare come into your presence is because of what Christ has done for us. We read in your word that because of what Christ has done for us, we can approach your throne with confidence. We read that we don't have to fear the day of judgment because of what your son has done for us. And Father, I pray that as we worship this morning, as we finish our time together, as we look forward to another week, as we look forward to another worship service a week from now, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, that we would give you the honor and the glory that you deserve, that public worship isn't about us, that our lives aren't even about us. Our lives are about proclaiming and displaying you to everyone who sees us and everyone who listens to us. Thank you for your son who died for us, his broken body, his shed blood that we commemorate every single week at communion. Again, it is because of his sacrifice, it is because of his death that we would have the audacity to call you our father, that we would have the audacity to come into your presence and worship you. We're so grateful. We're so humbled. I pray that our entire lives would be marked by an attitude of worship. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.